Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we get to hear from the producer and singer-songwriter, Don Dixon. Now, if anyone remembers, I've mentioned Don on here several times, I'm a big fan of his. He starts at, well, he's been in music for 45 years or more. In the 80s, he released a series of very critically acclaimed solo albums. Uh, One of the songs that was probably his best known is this one that you're listening to right here, Praying Mantis. So good. He continues to make music today. He still puts out albums. His wife is the singer-songwriter Marty Jones. They collaborate with each other a lot. But his, his legacy as an important figure in American rock music was probably cemented by his production work with Mitch Easter on the first two R.E.M. albums, Murmur and Reckoning. So we talk about that in here. How he went about sort of capturing that magical sound that made R.E.M. so new, so unique, and so special and important at that time. We also talk about a lot of the other careers and the other people he's worked with. Guadalcanal Diary, The Smithereens, Marshall Crenshaw, Matthew Sweet. As you guys know, those are some of our favorite artists. We've had many of them on the show already. So we talk about what he did to work when he worked with these people, recollect some stories, um, you know, what went into making them special. I love Don. I think he's got one of the most amazing and soulful voices that I've ever heard from a white man, especially. And his production work is unmatched. I mean, it is revolutionary. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I would say the first half is probably his solo work and the second half is the production work. Uh, he called me from his home in Canton, Ohio. Okay, well, good. Uh, so for starters, we got to talk about your solo career. Uh, one thing okay. I think is really interesting, I was going back, I was watching an interview of you with Arrogance, and it was this old <laughs> news program from like 1981 or something, and you guys were hanging it up. There, there was a there was a, a nationally syndicated TV show called PM Magazine. Yeah, I remember those. Probably too young to remember that. No, I remember. I'm 45. I remember those. Yeah. Oh, okay. Just barely. Mm -hmm. Just barely. Yeah, it's a glimmer (laughs) for you. I remember them. Um, I remember them because the Three's Company reruns that I would watch after school Uh came on after PM Magazine. So you had to endure. Now, did you grow up? Did you grow up in Denver? No, I grew up in Salt Lake City. I'm from Salt Lake City. Oh, okay, but you, but Salt Lake and Denver. I mean, they're yeah, they're similar, they're similar terrain. Neighbors. Yep. Yeah. And I've been in Denver for almost 15 years, so we okay. this is kind of home now. 
But um, anyway, so I uh, I'm watching this clip, and you guys are I, you're sort of joking, but I think there's a lot of truth to your joking too. When you're basically saying, you know, we've been doing this for a while, and we could probably keep making a living locally, but we haven't made it yet. We thought we would have by now. And so we're just going to kind of call it quits and see what else we can come up with. Was that really sort of the, uh, the plan for arrogance at that point was like, let's see what we can do by, you know, by ourselves. We had, uh, you know, had, we had had several national records at that point. Uh, the last one being on Warner curb. Hmm. And we were just not happy with sort of our positioning at Warner Curb. I mean, we we had wanted to be on Warner Brothers property, ended up getting a singles deal from Curb in 1979 and then making one album. And they wanted us to stay. And we just weren't, we felt like they weren't getting our strengths. And, and we had, um, so we, opted we we actually asked them to let us out of our deal which they were kind enough to do Mm. thinking we could waltz into another deal because Mm. we had had lots of interests uh and we made a very good recording of the current songs which include a lot of things that ended up on my first solo album okay so this was 1981 or two something like that we just couldn't get a deal we couldn't get anybody to to sign us. So we said, well, we were all th- about 30 at that point, 31 yeah. years old, which is old, mm-hmm. you know, in the rock business. And uh, rather than just kind of, you know, wither our way into nothingness, we thought we would uh, break up while we were sort of, you know, at the top of our game mm-hmm. regionally. And uh, so that's what we did. So, okay. yeah, I mean, everything we're saying is true and we're still all good friends and uh, do a lot of, you know, I just talked to Robert, the guy who's is the the other main writer. Yeah. Okay. Robert Kirkland. I just talked to him yesterday. So, um, but we had already been together at that point. We had made our first recording in January of 1970. Oh goodness. So we'd already at that point been together 13 years. Okay. So yeah, long time. You know, so how did you manage then? I mean, so I guess it worked. The plan was to for everyone to kind of go their separate ways, and you came out of it right. with a deal eventually. Why were they well, more interested yeah, in you well, than the band? Um, I don't know. It, mm. it was a long time. I mean, what, what I did, the first thing I did was just quit touring because I'd never played less than 150 shows a year oh, goodness. in my okay. life at that point. So I took 83 off from playing live and made 12 records that year for people produced 12 records and uh, which included that first REM record with Mitch right. in 1983, uh, yeah. the album murmur. Yeah. And, um, but a lot of things that weren't that obviously that popular, uh, at the end of that year, I decided I did still want to play. So I, I put together a little band and did a tour, uh, in either late 83 or early 84. I can't really okay. remember. And I, I, we had those demos I spoke to you about, uh-huh. which were half Robert's songs and were half my songs and recordings. And it were just like a three day session we had done at the studio reflection. That was sort of like our home base down in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. So I took my half and, and I had, 
out of the blue got offered a new publishing deal and we had finished with our Warner Brothers publishing deal. So we were, I was clear to sign a new deal at that point. And this is still 1983. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I used those songs as sort of my basis for the new publishing deal that's kind of what mm. got okay. me started and that included praying mantis it included uh south side girl Included a, like like I say about half of the songs on sure. on that album on most of the girls like to dance yeah but only some of the boys like to yeah. so based on those demonstration recordings which had were being used by my the people who had signed me as a a writer was a, a small but very cool company in California called Bug Music. Hmm. And they, in seeking a um, publishing deal in Europe for me, uh, it it ran across the the table of um, this small Scandinavian company called Mega, mm. and then a another small English label um, that was was owned by uh, Jake Riviera and Elvis Costello called mm. Demon. So Demon signed, they licensed that album from me for England and, you know, mm-hmm. Scotland, Ireland, Wales, that area. Uh, Mega got it for Scandinavia, and uh, which included Belgium and sure. Holland, okay. Benelux, Norway, Sweden, you know, Finland, yeah. all that stuff. And uh, we had some hits. You know, we, we did really well, and I started going over there and playing. And oh, really? All of that stuff was in late 84, early okay. 85, I guess. And uh, the only reason I signed with Enigma, which was that small label owned by the Hines brothers, Bill Hines and his brother, small California label, it was super cool uh-huh. label, uh-huh. is Bill had heard about the record. I was sitting in a chair waiting for a flight in Amsterdam and Bill walks up to me and introduces himself and said, I love your record. I would like to 
sign you for the United States. Mm. And I said, well, I don't, I'm not interested in the United States. Fuck the United States. <laughs> and um, he said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. I don't give a fuck about the United States. I, they, you know, yeah. uh, I'm doing fine. Yeah. So he was persistent. And he said, well, just take a look at our catalog and what we do. And, and so I, when I got home, I, uh, it's all pre-internet. So mm -hmm. when I got home, I kind of started checking out. He sent me a box of things. And, and they had everything from like Striper, which was this heavy metal. Christian band. Yeah. Christian band to, you know, the ugly janitors of America who had a song, <laughs> great song called Blind Man's Penis. Oh. So they were sort of, they were the kind of quirky. And that did it. And I really had liked Bill a lot yeah. when, I, when I met him, despite my negative reaction sure. to him initially. Uh, and uh, so I said, okay. So so I, I licensed them that album and then signed to them for several subsequent records. Okay. And they were affiliated with Capital, so, right. so we had pretty good distribution. And okay. we had some success with uh, with Praying Manish, you know, it was like yeah. a good medium rotation kind of early MTV hit. Yeah. Stuff, so. Now, did the success and of R.E.M.'s Murmur have anything to do, do you think, with sort of warming people to you and your individual music and getting you out there? I mean, I, you know, I, I would think to some degree it, it helped me. It didn't help me as much as it did Mitch because I really didn't quite fit into the as alty a thing as, uh, as any of them. And I was older, to, to be yeah. frank about that. You know, I was already at that point 35 years old. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, 34, 35. So... You know, I mean, but I mean, it certainly never—it never hurts when you have something that's that, um, sure, sort of su successful in the yeah. way things were successful. I mean, I mean, the, to put it in perspective, we had one week where we sold like sixty-seven thousand copies of um, Murmur. No, no, of, of most of the girls like today. Oh, sure. Oh, I thought we were talking about it. Okay. And no, no, so that got me to like 147 on the charts or something. I mean, if you sold <laughs> yeah. 67,000 copies of anything, you'd easily be in the top five. Right. Oh now. yeah. Oh yeah. Just because of the nature of, I mean, sure. if, you know, when, when they would sign me to do a, a college record, you know, a label like, well, let's just, I don't know what example I could, if, IRS, they, they would, you know, they would, they would say, Oh, well, we're, we're hoping to, you know, if we can get to a hundred thousand, you know, we'll be happy. I mean, like a hundred thousand was like, like nothing, oh, you know, sort of. but that was like enough to keep the band on. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, uh, so things were just very different. The, I, the, the concept of, of course. you know, what sales were, yeah. it was very yeah. different. So, um, okay. well, let me ask you about the anyhow, second album yeah. because, um, Ramble. No, that's okay. You're doing great. Let me ask you about the second one. That's probably my favorite, Mar Romeo and Juilliard. Um, but oh, when good. I, yeah, I love that album.
One of the things when I listen to it, there's a, and you probably know this, there's, there's, I'm listening to it and I don't normally sympathize with record labels who say, you know, we didn't know how to market this. We didn't know how to public, you know, how to, where to, what, what format does this fit into? I hate when they do that. Right. Right. But when I listen to your albums, I kind of get it a little bit because it's not quite in like the Bonnie Raitt, John Mellencamp, you know, area. There's a, something a little quirky going on, but it's obviously uh, just as intelligent, if not more so, and and arguably better. And it, I'm just imagining someone sitting there like, I don't know what to do. We have Don Dixon. He's amazing. And I'm not sure where to even put him. Did you feel that way? Was that a reality for you? Well, I've always issued and... You know, I've never bought into the idea that there should be any kind of genres. Mm -hmm. I think there are two genres of music. There is music that has words and Mm -hmm. singing and music that has no words and no singing. And those are the two categories. So as soon as as the you know it it it's always been the writers and and the djs and the people on the outside that mm-hmm. create these genres i think most musicians don't think in those terms also the thing you have to remember about hits is that hits are very often the shittiest songs yeah. they're not good songs they're right. hit records i mean right. this sort of this kind of you know max headroom or whatever the, these people that make the all the hits now uh-huh. you know which basically the computer spits out these yeah. combinations of things and they send it to katie perry and she has a hit yeah. with these things that are not good songs right but they're hit records and yeah. and the the shit all exists at the same time so you know the idea behind marketing which is what you're talking about is never going to go away because you have to figure out how to reach mm-hmm. people that are going to be drawn to a specific kind of thing. Right. Now, as a writer I've and as a performer, I'm probably too eclectic and probably not focused enough to ever have that sort of broad, yeah. casual appeal. Yeah. So the, the people that tend to be my fans are people that like music and yeah. are easily bored. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I tr- I'm just trying to entertain myself. Yeah. People that are easily bored. So, yeah. you know, I will do things that, that I'm interested in okay. and uh, not worry too much about I, I, I truly don't care what anybody thinks. And did you, did you care at the in time? My heart, no, I no. never had. So when you were part of been my problem in terms of being successful all huh. along. Okay. I mean, I've tried to play the game yeah. when 
when it was necessary. You know, I went over and did horrible TV in Europe, and I've done horrible TV in the United States, you know, uh-huh. and understood that that's part of trying to get people to hear what you're doing. Yeah. But I, I have always been loath to pander in any okay. way. So, I so. Uh, you know, so I, I will, when I'm, and the records all have a, every record I've ever made has had some sort of thematic glue for the, mm-hmm. for the most part. There've mm-hmm. been a few things that haven't had so much glue, but you know, the, the, I'm just not interested unless I can see a big story that isn't necessarily told in super clear language, but it is, you know, but the story is there for me. And, uh, and that goes for less probably for most of the girls like to dance simply because it is more of a collection of things that were already existed. Um, Mm -hmm. But don't you sit back. I just imagine you even at the time sitting there, um, so almost like fuming to yourself, watching the weekly charts go by and you're seeing like, you know, a John Mellon. I like John Mellencamp a lot, but I'm just throwing his name sure. out there. Um, you, th- you see a John Mellencamp kind of rising the charts and you just sit- I imagine you just sitting there, your face getting red and be like, I'm better than that guy. Nah. And then the next band nah, comes in, you're like, I'm better than that guy. I'm better than that one. I, never, I sing better than nah, him. Nah. My songs are better than him. Nah. No, really? Nah, you never. deserve to I, I feel that way. Care about it? Okay. Yeah, but I just don't. I really, truly, honestly don't care about it. And and it's it's all so, that part of it is also out of my control. Mm. That um, you, if if I ever, if it even ever crossed my mind, it was always in a very fleeting way. Huh. Well, that's good. So, that's healthy. Uh, I'm glad to hear oh, you yeah, say no, that. It's actually. just not. I mean, it's 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 not a. To to me, it's not a foot race. Okay. It, we're not fighting each other. To me, it it's 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 more of a total community, and it's and it's really about just getting to sing. You know, yeah. I, I just love to sing and play. You're so, so good at it, though. Hey, that's what I got to do. <laughs> so uh, I I have been the luckiest person in the yeah. world. You know, would I have liked to have sold a little few more records? Yeah, you know, that's yeah. fine. But I feel incredibly lucky that I that I got have gotten to do Good. what I have gotten to do in my life. And uh, you know, it it's there are tons of gifted people that have not had the success I've had. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm very lucky. And, and I, I, you know, I, like I said, like I was going to like with a song, here's the other thing that happened with all these early records is the, the paintings that are on the covers came first. Oh, really? Uh, (laughs) Interesting. The, the covers that those first three Enigma records are, are all named for, the paintings that are on the oh. covers and the, those paintings were all, you know, integral into the, what I, how I wrote the songs for the record. Did you paint those? Is um, that your work? No, 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 okay. no, no, okay. no, 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 no. It's all, the first one is actually a, a photographer named Harvey Wang who did 
it was most of the girls like to dance, but only some of the boys liked to, which was the name of a of a show, and it was like tinted uh, photographs of a bar mitzvah out uh-huh. on Long Island, <laughs> and that was a show in New York City. He's a New York City photographer, great photographer. Uh, the second album is called Romeo at Juilliard, and it's the painting of the guy getting the violin smashed over his head. Yeah. And that was painted by a guy from Winston-Salem named Ted Lyons, musician. Mm, I think I know that Complete name. freak. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I knew him. That that painting actually hung in Mitch's studio called Drive-In. Mm. Um, I eventually bought it. And then... Um, the third painting, E, was painted by a woman named Susan Weller, who was from California and was dating the, uh, when I met her, she was dating the, the what was his name? Butch somebody. He, he was the head review guy at Spin Magazine, if you oh. remember Spin. Oh, sure. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. And, uh, we we met him. We were having dinner with her, them one time and found out she was a painter. And I loved this little painting called E. So, uh, you know, I, I, that became a cover. And then that whole record was built around that idea. Interesting. Of, of okay. More R and B oriented. It, that that one had a lot more horns on it. Yeah. Um, and um, it has horns actually on almost every song. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, is got got more of a an R and B feel. That that's the record that has I can hear the river on. Cocker had a you know a hit with and, and which you know was was great uh, yeah. that that we we got we had that okay. kind of um, success good because of because of that record and, me, and um, go ahead well I was going to say let me ask you specifically about Romeo since I like that album so much I don't remember yeah. was, what were were there successful singles off of that album too the song they pushed unfortunately we made the mistake of letting them hear because marty and i would often on her records and my records more on mine than hers do something just kind of for fun so we Uh did this cover of gimme little sign
just as a throwaway, really. And they, of course, heard that and wanted that to be a single, which was, I think, a horrible mistake. So uh, I thought that was I on, um, I thought that was on one of the other ones. Well, see, you're probably right. I, maybe it, maybe that was. On, yeah, that's on E. Uh, on uh, e, Romeo, okay. there's like Borrowed Time what? and there's Heart, on, Heart in a Box. See, I love Borrowed Time. You take me for granted You make me look bad Come home drunk and tell me About men you've had You tell me you hate me Even beg for my touch Heart in a Box, I actually had written initially for when I found out Grace Jones was looking for songs. <laughs> so I was thinking about her and video and the idea, yeah. you know, of how dramatic and kind of cool video they could make with her singing that song and d doing, you know, and opening, you know, opening yeah. up the, this gift of yeah. heart. But, uh, yeah, I, what else is on that right here? You don't have it in front of you. Uh, I, I, I do. Yeah. I'm looking right at it. My very favorite song of yours is Million Angels Sigh. Um, oh, wow. I love yeah. that song, too. Yeah, the, that's my uh, I, You know, I don't know what happened. I don't remember. I know they put some singles out. Okay, um, okay. The, the biggest problem that I ran into on that second is I, I wasn't able, after signing with Enigma, they wanted worldwide rights. Mm. So I had all this momentum going with Mega and a little with Demon, even though Demon, I never kind of caught on in England like I did in Belgium and Holland and Norway, the three biggest countries for me over there. Really? And, wow. But because, you know, Enigma won the worldwide rights uh, to the subsequent records instead of me licensing things to them, that we decided to go in that direction and you know, they just didn't have the. They, I, I lost some momentum that I okay. might have been able to huh. keep in Europe had I been able to to negotiate 
you know, keep Mega and Demon involved. Mm, but, uh, you know, Demon was just a cool, it was, it was being run by this great guy named Andrew Lauder, um, for Jake and for, for Elvis. And, uh, okay. it's just a very cool little label. Interesting. Good. But, okay. I wanted to ask you about your covers. Your covers are so yes. interestingly chosen. Obviously, your version of when a man, I got to be honest, when I saw a man, when a man loves a woman on there and I thought, do we need another version of when a man loves a woman? And then you do it with this incredible soul voice that is from out of nowhere. I'm thinking I suddenly love this song again because I love your version, you know, and it's amazing. Well, and then even on E there's a, you know, calling out for love that Marshall Crenshaw song, which we're going to talk about right. more, more about well, Marshall in actually, a little bit, but yeah, I, I co-wrote that with Marshall. So oh, you did. I, oh, I, makes I, sense. Yeah. I wrote, I wrote that with him for the album I produced called Mary Jean and Nine great Hours. album. Yep. Um, so, uh, but we had we had fun, and, and the two versions are same song, but they're quite different from each other. The, um, now you're talking about when a man loves a woman off the first yeah off the first album album right. So that's arrogant. <laughs> so well, that you, is a, you nailed it. You cassette, deserved it. Yeah. Well, it's a cassette from uh, a show that was done in Greensboro, North Carolina, in 1981. And it was a complete just kind of tack on thing that I, that I did for the European releases. Mm. I, what I did for, with most of the girls like to dance, we licensed it to a bunch of countries. So we licensed some little label in Spain, somebody in Germany, somebody in Australia, and everybody got 17 songs, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And the only rules that we gave them on the licensing were that they had to use the same cover, hmm. front cover, not the back. Okay. They could do anything for the back they wanted, but they had to use the, the most the girls like to dance picture on the front and had to call it most the girls like to dance, but only some of the boys like to, but they could pick any of the 17 songs and sequence it in any way. So you've actually got a lot of different versions of that LP because you couldn't put all 17 songs on an LP back then. Yeah. It's too long. So most of the LPs are, I think the Spanish one might be 13 songs long because Spain liked 
long records, but uh, most of them are, are like 12 songs and almost all of them used when a man loves a woman. But that was just like a complete just throw on because I thought it was kind of fun. Oh. And the fact that it was a cassette yeah. tickled me. Yeah. So it was just it's just a board tape. Huh. you know, from, from a show in, in Greensboro is part one of our encores. Well, you nailed it. So, uh, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure we never even practiced that. Okay. You <laughs> cut out there for a minute, by the way. I, I don't know if oh, you could hear sorry. me, but that's okay. We're, we're good now. Um, <clears throat> I'm just, I'm just sitting in one chair, so I'm not moving around. I got it. Uh, okay. So it seems like, you know, the, the solo career for you anyway, starts to, um, I mean, the eighties were a hugely busy period for you, both your own solo stuff and all the albums you're producing. And then you sort yeah. of take a hiatus and it seems like from then on, even to this day, you sort of release an album when you feel like it. A lot of them I've noticed are, have you going, you mentioning this concept idea. I see that now because for instance, I think your last album, High and Filthy and Borderline has to do with male and female assassins. Another one. Well, it, uh, let, yeah. me re- let me let me let me read the the entire combustible yeah. world yeah. in one small room has to do with all the rooms yeah. in your house, right? Yeah. Well, it, it's different rooms. They're not all in one house, but it's oh, uh, okay. Just the room carries a lot of weight in every song. Okay. Do you do you tend to work best when you have a concept in mind? Are you like Pete Townsend? Well, I mean, I I need to have some reason to waste people's time <laughs> and, and to, I, 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 it helps me to, to have a focus like that. Uh, I had truly taken a break from writing songs before the entire combustible world. I was writing a lot of music, but I wasn't writing anything with words. And uh, I, I have some little essay someplace about how I got started, but my middle daughter's, dance teacher wanted me to write something for her. She was like a huge fan of some song of mine. And uh, she wanted me to write a song for them to dance to for their senior recital or something. So I started writing these songs. I I wrote three songs and I realized after the fact that they were all about rooms. Mm. So um, that a room played this huge role in every song. And, uh, so I said, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I think, a song, I think the song Roommate is on that record, and it's mm-hmm. not as much about 
a room as it is about you know sharing an apartment with somebody that you love but they don't necessarily love you Classic, the classic Gig Young, I like to refer to him, character that I bring out all the time. And if you remember, Gig Young was always the guy who didn't get the girl in the yeah. Rock Hudson Doris Day movies. Yeah. So, he go, wasn't uh, he like a raging alcoholic too in real life? Probably, aren't we all? <laughs> I uh, thought you'd say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so it's, you know, the, the themes do play in. I also yeah. think people put out too many records. So... I tried to lead by example and sort of only put out a record every five years as, as a statement, even though it was just a statement to me, because it's hard to keep any kind of momentum going when you only do something every five years. But, uh, that was just my, once the Enigma monkey was off my back to, to sort of deliver something every year, every 18 months or something. Okay. So, um, so what do you? How do you pay your bills these days? How, I mean, do you? No, I'm. You know, I still make records, play a lot. Yeah, you do. I've been touring Mary Chape, and you know, so it's, okay. it's no big deal. Plus, okay. I'm a million years old, so it doesn't <laughs> take much. Uh, the the uh, there was something I, I wanted to say about. Oh, that. please do. It. Oh well. No, when you I think about it. Tell me. If it comes um, out, yeah. I'm guessing. Um, and I hope this isn't too insensitive. I'm guessing there's some decent REM mailbox money. I mean, I don't know if it's enough to live well, off of, but. No, no, not near enough. I mean, we used to make dough out of REM and I made some dough out of the smithereens over the years. And, yeah. Uh, you know, a, a little dough out of, you know, songs because I've had a lot of songs covered and just recorded a lot of songs and had yeah. things in movies and and stuff and all that kind of adds up, but it doesn't add up enough to yeah, okay. live on. Okay. I mean, there has certainly have been years that I've made a lot of money, but that yeah. doesn't, that's not consistent for, okay. forever. Okay. Well, it just doesn't, you know, Yeah. again, sales being what they are, everybody, right. you know, people that want REM stuff, all I have to do is go to YouTube. Yeah. So, um, yeah. and you don't get really get anything for that. And, yeah. and plus, you know, it, it's it, we're just in a very interesting, um, egalitarian, but also kind of irritating period of, yeah. uh, you know, what music is and and how you how you get any, you know, what what it's kind of value it actually has because people have 
taken the value out of it in a lot of ways. So yeah. um, it's 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 a tough it's a tough time to be it coming is. up. I mean, people can't. Uh, when I was in high school, you know, I played in a popular instrumental band that just played weekends. And, you know, at 16 playing weekends, I was making more money than guys who worked a full 40 hour shift at the mill. Wow. Just by making, you know, $30 a night on the weekends, because, you know, you'd work at minimum wage, then you'd make $45 a, a week. Yeah. You know, and I was making $60 a week, just playing a few hours on Friday and Saturday. That's crazy. So, uh, and percentage-wise, that stuff just doesn't exist. I mean, guys go out and still make $30 playing on Friday. Yeah, that's true. Nothing's changed. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so, you know, $30 was like 300 now. So, you know, it's it's just a different world in trying to be a working musician yeah yeah it sure is uh so let's talk about your production okay yes i uh so many good things to uh to look into now obviously rem is probably maybe the biggest feather in your cap tell us how you came to be involved in rem and if you knew that you were inventing jangle pop when you did (laughs) um we uh, I, Mitch told me about R.E.M. when he was doing that first recording. And he did that first recording at his little studio that had helped him with in Winston-Salem that was in his parents' garage. It's called Drive-In. Mm-hmm. And we had known uh, a, the guy who, from, who was from Greensboro named Jefferson Holt who was their first manager and had gone to law school down at UGA and discovered them. Uh, he brought them up to Mitch to record that first single uh, of Radio Free Europe. And then Mitch recorded an album or an EP called Chronic Town mm-hmm. with them. And Mitch, to- I fr- they first came to my attention really through Chronic Town. And Mitch was talking to me about how this quirky band that that Jefferson had brought up from Athens and how the singer made these great animal noises. You couldn't really understand what he was saying, but didn't matter. It was cool. It was really different. And how, you know, and, and I, I did a couple of mixes. I, I like listened to the tapes and, and sort of talked to him about approaches and stuff and did some mixes. I don't think they used anything I did, but I, that's when I first found out about him and I really liked him. So, uh, we, we just liked how different they were. Yeah. Uh, but they still kind of fit into this quirky. Alternative kind of underground college sound. Yeah. 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 I mean, they were just different, but, but they were really cool. So, um, I was, I was intrigued by it. And, uh, so when it came time for them to make, um, what we, jokingly referred to as a real record uh-huh. <laughs> irs was sort of had signed that had licensed that ep and then they signed them and rem really loved mitch and wanted to keep working with mitch irs sent them around to make demo demos with several different producers 
uh, and REM hated all of those and begged them to let Mitch try, but but our uh, IRS said, well, they, yeah, he, okay, he can try, but he can't do it at his little toy studio. He has to go to a real place. So at this point, Mitch didn't have a lot of experience. We were good friends. He had helped me with things. We we both loved reflection. Um, I'd made dozens and dozens of records down there. You know, uh-huh. um, it was a real studio in in the best sense. And so he asked me if I would help, uh-huh. if I would just get in on it and help him do it. So that is how I got involved okay. um, through Mitch. Okay. And then, so Mitch and I went in there and we did two songs with him. We did uh, Pilgrimage and Catapult uh-huh. in a day. Love everybody liked the way they turned out, so we got the gig, and for almost no money, for about half of what I would have made, you know, recording some gospel group. Yeah. So, um, yeah, with a tiny, tiny budget and uh, no real, not much time. Yeah, I think we had maybe three weeks all in, which oh, you know, working on multi-track is is not a lot of time, yeah. but. Um, now, let me ask you this. But you, they're a great band. They and, are. And, and we did know and we did know that they already had this sort of fervent cult did they? you know okay. following. So so even though it was small, you know, you could tell they, they had that, that something was going on right. with them. Did you um you and know, people I, really hated them too. Yeah. Which is another great thing. Like if somebody really hates <laughs> really has a visceral hate for something yeah. then you know you're on to something i have some too. friends who are like that and i don't understand them but they feel that way anyway so uh um, yeah when you you know you mentioned at that time in your life working on dozens and dozens of albums would you have said at the time maybe that this was just one of those albums and it but who knew that it would have become what it became or did you get the sense it, that you were working it, on something a little different a little special we knew we were working on something special, which is why we were interested in doing it Okay, uh, for less money than we would normally make. But you the, probably, uh, you may have felt that way about every project you were on, right? No. No, no this one I was different? Not, okay, not at all. Okay. A lot of bands, a lot of bands, you you could, could tell they were extremely good, but they were trying so hard to be some, something that was mm. already popular. Got it. You know, there was a, there was a very popular band from South Carolina called the killer whales that were trying desperately to be, you know, the police. Uh And so everybody thought they were great and they were going to be the next big thing. And even though I worked on it 
this record with them and liked them and did what I could to to make it good, it wasn't inventive enough. Mm. You know, if they had even got it been successful, it would have been they would have been you know just another one of these. They would have been a police clone, you know. So and so people who aren't listening with the same kind of I think uh, outside viewpoint or listening to the wrong things. You get inside something and you're not listening to the whole thing. And part of your my job as a producer is not only to protect what's cool about the band from the label, which is constantly, constantly putting the wrong kind of pressure on a band. Yeah, yeah. Even the best, most benevolent labels are full of absolutely full of shit. Yeah. And uh, so part of the job is to make sure that the band, neither the band nor the label loses what's special about why they signed these guys in the first place. You know, it's not a, it's not a foot race. It's not about winning and losing baseball games. Yeah. Now let me ask you this, the jangle pop, the jangle pop question. Did you um, think so I don't know if you thought at the time we're inventing something different here or, and if you did, was there a, what's the secret? Is there a particular, I'm, I don't know anything about production. Are you turning a knob to like the jangle pop setting that no one knows about, but you, you know, what, what, what the, is the, the secret sauce to this? I, I think where, I don't know who coined that term. Certainly wasn't us. Uh, we, at the time, REM was deathly afraid of anything that could be construed as guitar distortion mm. because they in no way wanted to be affiliated with the other huge and very popular and very successful style that was going on called the big hair bands, yeah. all that New Jersey stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. So they wanted to be on the side of things that if since we mentioned the police more like the police, which are these clean guitar sounds. And since the band was all the sound of the band was predicated by Peter Buck's incredibly inventive arpeggiated guitar parts Mm -hmm. and Mike Mills, very, very cool contrapuntal bass lines that were unlike R&B record bass lines, mm-hmm. uh, much busier and much less to do with holding down the bottom. Yet the drumming was almost like disco drumming. It was very yeah. low end oriented, really driven by the kick drum, uh, which is why for that first record, we put him in the small booth and went with a very sort of high, uh, high records, Memphis, close, tight, not open, not rock drum sound. Because hmm. uh, the low end is held together by the bass drum, okay. not by the bass guitar. Okay. Uh, that's that's what you needed to give it a sonic fullness. Got it. You needed that, that foot to drive things. Yeah. Uh, the... So what we had to figure out how to do was to make the arpeggiated guitar parts dense enough 
to fill up that space in this way where they didn't sound like sissies. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of um, sort of under compression internal uh, stuff. There's a lot of doubling and things that you don't really hear. We added a lot of different kind of odd things like vibes, no- noises, just things that are taking up sonic space to, to make things full. We mixed the, the vocals very much. It's not that they're soft. They're just part of the fabric as opposed to sitting on top of the song. Mm. They, they are the fourth instrument as opposed to these instruments that are backing up a vocal. Uh, we, all of those things, I think the, the, the ringing kind of sound of the guitar was part, I think where the word jangle came yeah, from, yeah. but it's largely his, arpeggiated okay. stuff. Okay. okay. Uh, and but it largely came out of necessity of of them not wanting to use distortion to sustain the guitar. So we had to come up with other ways to give the guitar sustain. Yeah. When you were um you know when Michael Stipe is coming everybody knows. We don't know what he's saying. We don't know what he's talking about, but he says they, he he sounds like he means it and it's so unique and it's so different than what everyone else is doing. Was there Ever any, because you worked on those first two albums, were there ever yeah. any talks about, hey, Mike, do you think you could maybe clear things up or uh, do these things a little differently? Or was it, were you, you know, encouraging him to keep going down that road? Because it was a very weird road that turned no, out I, in their favor. No, we, 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 uh, no, it was, it was very much part of what I liked about <clears throat> the band. And, Mitch too, and I was not interested. I've never been interested in in the narrative. You know, I mean, I write a lot of narrative songs, but I write with songs that that are not particularly narrative. They're more image based, and everything that Michael was doing, particularly at the time, uh, he, he sort of developed a more narrative style later. As uh-huh. I don't know, there was out of necessity or, or whatever. But at the time, you know, he's just repeating one verse. I mean, most of the lyrics on these first two albums could be written on a matchbook cover, you know, Uh they're, they're just these stream of consciousness kind of sounds that sound good. So I was interested in it sounding good. And I was interested in being in him being happy with what the vocal was, you know, the most, uh, influence I would ever have would be like, um, like on, on the second album, he and I would go in on, on the second record, he and I tended to go in earlier than everybody else. And he would get some singing done. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that record? Reckoning. And, Reckoning. Uh, mm-hmm. so he and I would go in around noon and we'd have a couple hours for everybody else to wake up and come in. And it was usually just the two of us in the studio and he, he'd just be singing. So, you know, he was having trouble with, I don't know, with seven Chinese brothers or something, just kind of not giving it anything. Uh-huh. And uh, and I just helped encourage him by throwing that record down to the bottom of the stairs where he was that I found up in the <laughs> in the attic that was some old gospel thing. And the next thing I knew, he was singing the the lyrics off the back of this gospel album. Interesting. To Seven Chinese Brothers, totally woke opened him up. And then as soon as he did that, we hit the tape again, and there was the the great version of Seven Chinese Brothers. 
The record, the, we we made a mix of the other thing. It's called Voice of Harold. Okay. And it's on one of those eponymous records, one of the best ofs of one of the oddities okay. albums that IRS put out. Reverend Bill Thunderberg says he cared that much for me. Charles Surratt introduces his own composition on Calvary for me the joy of knowing Jesus is a song of pure delight featuring John Barbie the pure tenor quality of the voice of Harold Montgomery gives a special interpretation to the So but what's your? The most part, oh, go ahead. It was my job. Was well, my my job was just just to get him to do something that that we all could yeah. sign off on. Yeah, you know, it's really pretty simple. Yeah, when you look back at that period, and that had to have changed your life forever, basically. Um, what is the memory that sticks in your mind the most? And it could be something musical. It could be the time you guys all went bowling. It could be whatever, you know, what was, what is the thing that you're just like, those were the days, what memory comes to mind? Well, you know, I, there, I can't really think of one specific thing. I mean, we did do some fun things. I remember we all went to see, uh, before reckoning, I guess, or early in the first few days of recording reckoning that song, they had a song called wind out on a, in a movie, you know, that, called The Bachelor or something like that. Bachelor, I don't know. It was some some early Tom Hanks movie. Bachelor and, Party. Uh, sure. We all went, yeah. <laughs> and we all went to the theater to see that together. And yeah. Uh, it was awful.
Uh-huh. <laughs> had a good time because it was so awful. It's a fun song, but uh, you know, we were wor- we were working. You know, we 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 just didn't have much time, so it was all you know, fourteen hours a day of working, and then trying to sleep for a little while yeah. and come back and working. So, uh, but it was all good. I mean, you know, okay. I was good. thirty two or three and Mitch was yeah. late twenties. They were all earlier twenties. So, yeah. uh, it was the, the right time for, good. for that kind of thing. I mean, what, I, I wish I had one great anecdote. No, that's okay. Figure one out. Bachelor party's a good one. Did you, would you have ever yeah. guessed that the world would come to them on their terms like they did making them one of the biggest bands ever? No, <clears throat> I, I, no. I wouldn't have guessed that they would be, you know, more popular than you two. When yeah. by the time they broke up, but but they the end up, but they did it by maintaining their integrity and by being interesting and good and yeah. and playing great shows and uh, you know working incredibly hard yeah. and and that's that's the thing. I mean, they worked really hard long before they got famous. You know, they mm-hmm. got in that van and busted their asses and constantly look themselves in the mirror you know yeah they really wanted to do the right thing they, they still yeah try to do the right thing. they do yeah yeah okay uh was michael stipe out uh at the time did you did his love life or personal life no, ever come and up they, 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 you know actually during reckoning he was staying with a girl oh was he so, yeah. So, you know, I don't No, We didn't talk about any of that sure. or care. No, I wouldn't have cared so either. Never it even just... crossed. I mean, never crossed my mind. It, sure. Not even for 30 seconds. Like, yeah, it's never even thought about. I asked about that no, specifically he because out. he, it was, it was this thing that no one was quite sure of for years and years and years. And then he came out and was like, Oh, I thought I was out all along. I didn't think it was that big of a secret right. and i just wondered right. if you guys you know if you guys had at the time if there was any sort of we got to hide michael's sexuality or if michael's just being michael and well, you're not really never, even thinking about it or paying any attention about it well i mean especially when it was it that his sexuality wouldn't really have affected anything yeah, yeah. i mean it might have been more of a plus true yeah i think uh you know ambiguity like the, the stuff David Bowie was able to sort of pretend, David Bowie, you know, almost pretended to be gay. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So it, it's like, you know, even though he was probably, you know, a lot, a lot of people do both. Sure. And I think there was an element of both in Michael's life at that time too. Okay. So. Okay. But I, I don't really know or, or sure. care. And yeah. it truly never was never, never discussed okay. on any level. I was just curious, With just anybody. because it, he was such a no, firebrand. No, no, the label like never asked. Nobody ever. Okay. Yeah, nobody okay. ever. Nobody Good. ever said anything about it, and it never even occurred to me one way or the other. Good, as it should be. Um, okay, let's yeah, talk yeah. about let's talk about REM's little brothers, Guadalcanal Diary. Um, ah. I love them. I've had Murray Attaway on here. He's a trip. I love it. He's such a he's such ah. a funny curmudgeon. Um, Oh, he's a complete curmudgeon and, and always was. Yeah, he was even back then. Okay. So oh, yeah. uh, you were talking earlier about bands coming to you, set, you know, thinking that they're unique, but really and truly just sounding like other bands. 
Guadalcanal right. sounded like REM, but they did. They were good enough at what they did that it didn't ever feel like a copycat. It felt like a true, you know, uh, unique and sincere approach to their music. What did you see yeah, in Guadalcanal I, I, Diary that you liked? Well, I mean, I, I I loved the songs. I loved writing. I loved the energy. And to me, they never sounded like REM. They they oh. sounded about as much like REM as REM sounded like the B-52s. Oh. So it's like there was an energy there that was definitely part of that scene. Got it. But it was almost all the energy. The writing was nothing like REM's writing. Murray's singing was is nothing like Michael's singing. Very different singing style they uh you know i i made the first album for them in five days including oh, the mixes really and <laughs> uh and and that was for a tiny label called db records uh danny beard had a little label in in uh at, i guess athens or atlanta uh, uh-huh. he, he might have been atlanta uh and they were really from marietta they they weren't mm-hmm. from athens until later so they were more of an Atlanta band, really. So I never saw the the REM Interesting. connection as yeah. anything particularly strong because the writing was so different. Yeah. Um, and they okay. were, you know, they're just they were just powerhouse killer yeah. little they band. They are. Man. They are. When you when they you know when you're working on something like Flip Flop and Litany, which is one of the greatest songs of all time, by the way. Is the label coming to you saying we, you know, Electra coming to you saying we've got this band, we need hits? Because I can't, as much as I love them, they feel like they could conquer college radio, but maybe not cross over into pop radio. I don't know that it's that, you know, easy on the ears for the well, normal people. Were you tasked yeah, with trying was, to get was, them there? You know, we actually got more heat from IRS to get them something more like banana rama that you know they could have a hit with rem oh. that electra always kind of left me alone on, oh nice uh, on 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 the guadalcanal diary records i just I, i'm not sure anybody from electra ever showed up at a session it, it I, they must have but i just don't remember it yeah yeah the uh all the rem i mean all the guadalcanal records were again fairly quickly done even when we had bigger bu- budgets 
because they were always working. I mean, one of the great things about working with a band like the Smithereens or, or Guadalcanal Diary is that they're always working. So you don't have to spend forever on the record because they're, because they're not popular enough that they can afford to take a ton of time mm, to make a record. Point. You know, they, yeah. they've got to keep working, yeah. um, which appealed to me. I like to work fast. I, I think, you know, beating a dead horse is an evil thing to do. Yeah. And, um, you know, how long should it take to make a three minute song? So, um, <laughs> so, you know, we're, and, and I hate pre-production. I think all that's just a complete waste of time. I think you need to have the machines on when, when there's some excitement about, mm -hmm. you know, going on, not, it's not just ditch digging. There's a lot of ditch digging involved, but there's also trying to find those magic moments involved. So, yeah. um, okay. it's, you know, I just, uh, I did not get pressure so much from the label. I mean, REM was always, I mean, Guadalcanal was always trying to, to create something that they could have a hit with. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants hits. I mean, it doesn't sure. matter. It's just, you know, bands like Led Zeppelin never really had hit records, you know, mm. hit mm. singles. Like they never had radio records. Right. The, the records got played later when FM sort of came of age. Yeah. But they didn't have hit singles. You go back and look yeah. on the singles charts, there's nothing. Right, right. Led Zeppelin. Um, what's your favorite Guadalcanal Diary story? And give us an example of Murray, like at his curmudgeonly best. Well, Murray was just, you know, he was always, yeah, what's a good way? He was less of a curmudgeon. He was a contrarian. Hmm. He would argue hmm. a point, an opposition point, simply for the fun of being the, the, the guy in the room with the opposite yeah. angle. It. But the, the band... Just like R.E.M. R.E.M. was never quite the same without Bill Berry because it was so balanced in terms of its, there was no hierarchy. They were all equal, equal had equal veto power. Mm -hmm. And Guadalcanal was the same way. It was four people coming together, trying to create something. And they all, you know, it wasn't Murray's band. Mm -hmm. Murray just wrote most of the songs and was the lead singer, but it yeah. wasn't his band. Okay. You know, everybody got to call bullshit. So, uh, the, I think the most fun I had with them is we, I encouraged them one night out of our one evening out of our five days, making that first album, um, to invite a hundred friends into the studio. And he, they invited because we recorded that record in Atlanta. And uh, so they invited fans and we recorded six or seven songs. And then with the fans just standing around, clapping and cheering and egging mm -hmm. them on. Mm -hmm. So that was tremendous fun. And, and nice. I don't even know where that stuff is, but I'm sure it exists. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the other, the other great memory is the very last day, like, it was about eight in the morning and I just finished mixes and, and I'm blarily like opened the mm -hmm. door that goes out to where my car was. And there was this line of young college students with their text, with their, you know, books and stuff waiting to come in to take their recording class <laughs> at this studio. So um, I thought that would, I will always remember the dichotomy walking of that. out. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, that's great. Of the time I was in reflection and I had fallen asleep on the couch in one of the studios because there were three studios at reflection. It's a big one. Then there was a, a medium sized one. There was a small one. And I was in the medium sized studio. I didn't even know what record I was working. I think it was one of mine. And I had just kind of passed out on the couch and the session for the next day came walking in and I was like spread out in my underwear laying there <laughs> sleeping on the couch. But, uh, it was some gospel session or, you know, it's like some totally straight kind of session. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, great. Why do you think Murray, do, why do you think they don't do more or why do you, I mean, you know, they break up, Murray does the one uh, solo album and now he's like a, you know, a IT specialist or a graphic designer I or something like that. Yeah. I, I, I don't, you know, you, you give up after a while. I mean, it's yeah. so hard to not give up. I mean, Jeff has stayed incredibly busy, the guitar. Right plays all the time and has several very successful touring bands like the Waddles who tour all over the country in Europe. And, yeah. uh, but, um, Murray, I made a fantastic record with Murray for Geffen after that first album. After Enthrall? And they would really? Never, yeah. And they never put it out. And, oh, and we, were, it's working title was Delirium. And they kept making us record. So oh, we ended this. up with about 25 songs, uh, all of which are great. Yeah. And I think, I think it's all on one. I don't think it ever came out, but it's all on one collection in my basement called how I spent my 30s, <laughs> which was something that, uh, that, uh, Murray, a title oh, Murray that's gave. Great. So, you know what? I think uh, Murray may have sent that to me and I forgot all about that until right now. I might even have a copy of yeah. that. I can't remember. Well, you, you might look for anything called delirium. I, okay. I, I have the original record we made, which was delirium, which is fabulous record. And, yeah. um, so, okay. Uh, okay. you know, just, Murray at some of his best. If you like Litany, I do. Um, yeah, you would love this. Okay. Um, now, one thing we're going to cross here over to the Smithereens, but there's a bridge, and I want to sure. I want to mention something because when I interviewed Murray, he, um, as much as he loved you, he had a problem with one thing that you did uh, in his mind, <laughs> which is that if you Good. listen to the Guadalcanal Diary album Flip Flop, there is a song on yeah. there called "The Likes of You." And sure. it, in his mind, sounds as if the smithereens ripped him off.
And since you produced them, you allowed that to happen. And it does sound just like a Smithereens riff. Um, Smithereens are like a top 10 favorite band of all time for me. So, but he was, he was a little, he's a little agitated that you allowed this to happen and didn't, you know, give him credit. I, I'm not sure that I particularly noticed it. And if, if anything, that was after the first Smithereens record. So it was. um, if anything, maybe so, Murray may have been. Yeah, exactly. Them. Right. I don't know. Yeah, I don't yeah. know who copied who. Okay. Um, that you know, the Smithereens had been around making that more sort of American kinks is mm-hmm. what that stuff sounds like to me. That yeah, that part point. of that song in particular almost sounds more like a kinks song, mm. not sonically, but the way the rhythms are and the way okay, that guitar that. part is. Okay. So uh, that's funny. I love uh-huh. that. Good. I loved it. I okay. love that Murray cares. Um, <laughs> he did. The, he cared uh, deeply. The, yeah. Oh, that's good. I yeah. love that. I yeah. truly do. Uh, he never confronted me with that for whatever that's whatever it's worth. Yeah, we got into this conversation about like bands ripping off, <laughs> you know, like Led Zeppelin ripping off Spirit for Stairway to Heaven. And he said, well, oh, you know well, about what happened to me, don't you? And he tells this whole story. And I'm like, no, I've never noticed that before, Murray. But, I'll, uh, you know, that's yeah, really would, interesting. Would, I'd be very interested to see how that, how that, what the order was. And I'm, does he remember what the, Smithereen song was that uh well it you know it sounds like, like a lot of them exactly. honestly it sounds like you know the beginning yeah. it could be the beginning of because so many of those Smithereen songs sound start off with the riff you know and it does right. kind oh, of sound totally. like a Everyone. Smithereens riff yeah um okay so let's talk about the Smithereens they are one of the greatest bands ever I love them so much I've had Jim oh, on I'm here I'm so glad that you love them I do they're, more than the other bands we've talked are. about honestly yeah and um, I'm wondering how you got involved with them. Uh, I, did they hear the REM album and they think this is our guy? Did you pitch them that you were the man you know, for I'm them? How sure did it happen? How, oh, no, no, no. I, no. I was reluctant to do anything with them. And they were, Pat got it in his head that he thought I should record them. So I think Enigma had signed them based on uh, some recordings they had made earlier. Okay. Because I think they put out a record called Beauty and Sadness or something. So. Yep, they did. And uh, Pat got it in his head that I was going to produce them. So it was like I kept kind of putting it off, putting it off. Not because I didn't like them. I was just busy and I was tired. And uh, I didn't really didn't want to do another five-day record, but, you know, which is basically what the budget was going to be like. Uh, for Enigma, but Marty Jones and I had a gig at Folk City, and Pat used to work at the door at Folk oh, City. Oh, huh. okay. So he he was like the doorman, and mm-hmm. so that was one of his jobs. And he saw that we were going to play there. So what he did was had a photographer show up, and the whole band show up. And when Marty, when Marty and I came into the dressing room, there was his band and the photographer, and they took pictures of us, and he had it posted in Billboard oh. that I was 
had agreed to make before you had even agreed to do this. Totally. Uh, That's a savvy Pat move. So a classic, classic Pat move that you would learn to, you would see over and over again, um, these fabulously well orchestrated, um, you know, moves, um, that he was so good at. And, and, and then, so then, and and just as suspected, we had to make this record super fast in New York City, you know, like the few days, and then like on, you know, New Year's Eve or something, you know, and uh, freezing cold, hard, difficult circumstances, a million guests, mm-hmm. uh, all the stuff that happened on, especially for you. Uh, fortunately, I had a fabulous engineer named Jim Ball that I was working with and um, he was way ahead of me and they already had a few tracks done and um, you know so it was it, it was it was just a matter of working really hard and I could yeah. do things like we were working at um, famous studio there what what was it called uh, uh, record plan re- record plan yeah. yeah so we were working at the record plan and they had a couple of studios and we were in Basically, in one studio in the back, and then the old studio, one of the ones that John Lennon had used a lot. Mm. Like, I left Jim Ball working on guitar overdubs or something, and I went in with uh, Pat and uh, Suzanne Vega, and we did the vocals in that other room for, sure. for that song place. she sang on. Yeah. You know, yeah. So we were able to double up on some things like we could do at reflection to, to get things done more quickly. Yeah. Uh, wow. What did you tough. tell us? Tell us what you think makes them special. They're just, I mean, Pat's, Pat's voice and his uncanny sort of automatic melodic sense that is that, that where things are very familiar without being copy of anything mm-hmm. so they have this immediately recognizable great sound and and the band i mean you know Maceris, incredibly mm-hmm. inventive great bass player um you know babcheck holding it down with the very best of the the sort of big rhythm guitar players and pat was a good guitar player too yeah. uh very solid kind of sound and of course dennis who just a terrific drummer right up there like sort of like bunny carlos sort of level drummer Mm -hmm. so um like and they both had a tremendous both they all four of them had a tremendous reverence for the past 
without wanting to ape it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they could they could you know make they could make references in their head about how something should be based on something that already existed to mm-hmm. but they created something that was very uniquely their own. They like REM had an instantly recognizable sound. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think it never quite got over the hump? I mean it, you know, they had a they had well, success but, they had but never quite they did. They did. It was it was more alternative radio success versus pop yeah. radio success, you know? Do right. you think it was just that the right. world doesn't know what to do with power pop? music in general well, it, like that or it, what it definitely it definitely fits and you know they were definitely more in the world of Graham parker than they were the mm. world of bon jovi yeah very despite true despite the fact totally. they were from new jersey but they aspired to the sort of you know bon jovi success so that that was one of the things when when they when i quit making the records stacy you know started making the records the sound got kind of sort of a little glitzier in a way yeah. that I wasn't as happy with. Mm-hmm. But but again, that was just me and, and that I applauded and just like with REM, we were totally glad to see REM move on and try to find something else, you know. Yeah. And um and and I and I really like Ed and and Ed was fulfilling their Mm-hmm. their desires to have more of that i think crossover success i think it probably can primarily be attributed as horrible as this is to the fact that you know uh pat wasn't david lee roth yeah he yeah. didn't he wasn't you know this you know he was beautiful in his own mm-hmm. way but he wasn't this kind yeah. of sexy front right. man which yeah. is what in that in that age of MTV, that's what it was going to take. That that's was my argument too. Yep. Yeah, that was my yeah, argument. I mean, too. I, I think it's all it was. I mean, sound wise, the the sound, if it was purely just on sound, but MTV drove the success of all of those. Yep. Those they bands. Did. Very true. Very true. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically. I think I read somewhere once that Dennis had a very. He was very particular. I believe about the first album in a particular drum sound. Now, I I haven't read this in years, but something I'm getting a recollection as we're talking that either he was uh, suspicious of anyone who wanted to produce them or his one thing with whoever produces us better not soften my snare sound or something like that. Do you remember what I'm talking <laughs> well, about? We had, well, I mean, we had lots and lots of discussions with every record I ever made with him about the drums and he was always really concerned about how they sounded and you should be i mean that's that's his job and that's what he cares about and we constantly were working to get get a sound that that he was excited about but obviously there there are lots of um to to say that he was more um hands-on about the sound of his drums would be absolutely correct okay. than, than some drummers. Yeah. Even though a lot of drummers, you know, if you, everybody but session men is always super worried about what their drums sound like. Yeah. So Bill was just as concerned. Like on the second record, everybody wanted to go more rock. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, on the second REM record. So, you know, and that a lot of that came out of them touring bigger places, opening for the police, all that kind of stuff, right. not being in clubs anymore. So with, with Dennis though, because Dennis is a historian, he would bring in the, the least appropriate examples of what he wanted his <laughs> drums to sound like. It'd be some fifties, doo-wop record where the uh, drums are barely in it and he'd say uh-huh. well the drums sound like this <laughs> and it would be something that had absolutely no connection to, uh-huh. to what it what it was but we i spent more time specifically on dennis's drums than many records just because he was constantly okay pushing i know. wondered yeah uh tell tell me your favorite smithereen songs my two favorites are alone at midnight and house that we used to live in. That's one and two. What are uh, what would you say are your pretty favorites? Pretty great. Yeah, I, I have a lot of trouble with superlatives of any kind. Oh, okay. Uh, so it would let me, be okay. Let really me add, hard for me just because I've never thought that way. Okay, let me let me change um, this because I hear this from a lot of the people that I've interviewed that they hate answering that favorite question. So I turn this. I turn right. the question a little bit. Is there a moment that you are particularly proud of? Is there, when you look back on the recording of those albums and you think, oh, it was a really rough day and Jim was in a bad mood, but then I pushed him to find a riff and he did and we captured the greatest recording or something like that. Is there a, is there a memory that is so, you're like, I nailed it on that one. I'm really proud of that. No, I, most of my memories about the Smithereens uh, revolve around like who passed out drunk on which night. <laughs> So it's it's like there was a there was, there was a lot of real rock bandness about yeah. that band. Okay. Mm-hmm. So and it, it, fortunately they tended to rotate. Mm. Um, so you'd you'd have you know, you know they they wouldn't all go yeah. go wasted on, on the same night. Okay. Yeah, at the same time. Right. Exactly. That's great. Uh, the they um, you know without kind of sitting down with you and and listening to the records. Okay. It would be hard. Like if you and I ever got to sit down and listen to the records, I'm sure all kinds of things would flood back. I mean, the second album was, I can remember a little more about it simply because it was, we had longer to work. Okay. And, uh, we, we made that record at the Capitol studios in Hollywood. And, uh, and it wasn't, I mean, again, that, that first album had pretty much finished it in five days of unbelievably long just brutal days uh-huh. and um the the uh green thoughts which was the, the one at, that we made at capital after they had moved from enigma to capital records okay. um was by you know a little more relaxed mm. okay uh, i was oh. already a whopping 36 at the time too yeah both those albums are classics. Thirty six. You did in the making of that album. Yeah, because yeah. it was in December, I think, of nineteen eighty seven. So okay, maybe I turned thirty seven if it, if it was in eighty seven. I don't remember. Well, I think most I fans. I was born late in fifty. Okay, I think most fans would say that those first two albums are basically untouchable, and. They, you know, we love them. We love everything they do, but those two hold up specifically as the benchmarks of how great the Smithereens can be. Well, yeah, and and I, you know, I loved that record I, I made with them um, 
you know, when they went to RCA, I loved Pat's solo record. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we made, we made some yeah. very good records. You did. Yeah. When you, were you in touch with Pat over these last, however many years when his health continued to deteriorate? Totally. I, yeah. You know, but you know, I, none of us expected him to die. I mean, yeah. you know, he didn't expect to die. He was, yeah. you know, I just talked to him a few weeks before, before, you know, I got the call and, uh, yeah. and we, we were, I mean, they had a tour on the books. I mean, he, we were talking about getting together and doing some stuff and mm -hmm. making another record. You know, there yeah. was, there was nothing. There was no, he, he had no, uh, he had no plans to cast off his mortal coil. So. Right. I had uh, seen them in concert just a couple of months before, and I had talked to Jim just a couple of months before he died, and I had expressed to Jim how concerned I was about his health because he it had been bad for a while, but we didn't know he was going to die. And I remember... Right. I, I, uh, never, I never saw the band once he wasn't playing guitar. I mm. saw him toward right before he quit okay. playing, you know. Yeah, but, I saw him with his arm in his sling and it was it was pretty sad. Right. People had to like hold the Pepsi up to his mouth with a straw and, right. but he still sounded great. He still they still brought it. And oh, yeah. I, I remember like two nights before he died, he posted on Facebook, like, Hey guys, my you may have heard my health is bad, but I'm actually in really good shape. And uh, in fact, I've got a stack of movies I'm gonna watch and he listed all the movies that he was gonna watch. And then, uh, like yeah. two days later, he was gone. Yeah, no, it. it uh, I tried to call him like the day before he died. I oh think, boy! And just didn't get through because he used this. He he was real old fashioned. He had like a you know phone with a cord, with a <laughs> coily cord, you know, in an office uh -huh. at his house. And, okay. And he wasn't if he wasn't wasn't near the phone, he didn't answer it. You know, so yeah. um, hmm. so sad. And one weird. other thing I want to ask you about, about too, is I, you produced the 2011 album, right? Yeah, that's the one I was talking about for our right. That okay. Yeah. And I think, I think if I remember right, and I meant to reread before we got on, I lost track of time. I think no, you say in the liner notes in there that you held back a song from those sessions as a sort of like totem of we know that we already have one more classic in the can. So when we get to back together and we do another album, we're one step further than we would be otherwise with this great song. Do you remember that? Well, I, I can't say I specifically remember writing that, but I, we, we had a great song of Jim's mm. that Pat never wrote words to. And uh -huh. uh, we actually tried to, see if we could find anything where Pat had hung, sung any words for this song and we none of us can find any oh. any place where there there are words okay. but it is a really it would have been a great great song for the album and Pat was sometimes very uh curmudgeonly in uh -huh. in finishing songs he wasn't going to get all the writer's credit on. <laughs> Jim was very <laughs> uh, diplomatic. In how, yeah. Jim was very diplomatic yeah. in how he talked about that. Well, hopefully Jim yeah. says that he's going to work on a solo album. Maybe that'll come out at that point then. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. That's, I sure that's hope that's so. That's a great idea. Yeah. Um, I, but I spent, you know, a couple of hours, you know, going through everything I had trying to find a version that had even a scratch vocal on it. That, but all I've got is one where Pat's kind of just kind of talking him through a bridge uh, and he's not it. really singing anything. You know? Okay. Um, 
All right, man, I could talk about the smithereens for hours, but let's uh, let's there's two more I want to ask you about. Marshall Crenshaw. Oh, 2011 wasn't the wait. 2011 wasn't the wasn't the RCA record. What no, was the no, RCA no. record? Uh, the uh, date they, with the smithereens. Yeah, yeah. No, 2011, 2011 came out. In 2011. Yeah, that's yeah. the one we. Yeah, that's the one we did at Mitch's. Yeah, the Delatorium. Okay. okay, I'll shut up now. No, that's Marshall fine. <laughs> yeah, Marshall Crenshaw. You said earlier you worked on the Mary Jane album or Mary Jean. Yeah. I always get it wrong. Um, Tell yeah. me how you got into that orbit. I'm assuming, I mean, all these people are sort of interconnected. I mean, Marshall's out there now fronting the smithereens sure. occasionally. Um, right. How did you become involved here? I met Marshall on making the first smithereens record. Okay. I thought so. He came in and actually guested on, on the f- couple songs in the first smithereens album. Yep. And, you know, we became friends. Uh, he played on one of Marty's records. We, cut a song of his called whenever you're on my mind so good and uh he plays guitar on a few songs on that album even though he doesn't play on that song and uh he just asked me to make a record for him i said sure i love your stuff and and my i felt like my job on mary mary jean was to show let him show off as a guitar player because i don't mm. think people at, at the time appreciated what a great guitar player he was yeah. so i we made that record up in bearsville in a few weeks and and my you know my i felt like my job was to to show people that he could really play the fucking guitar yeah he sure can that's really good um going back i keep asking these kinds of questions can you pinpoint what you think the magic of marshall crenshaw is I, you know, I think Marshall is just another guy who's like an unbelievable historian, uh, has this deep, deep knowledge of a lot of different kinds of music and uh, has been able to nevertheless forge his own, uh, you know, put his own stamp and be like, have a really recognizable style and voice. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's. Uh, I think lots of times it comes. It, you know, it comes down to 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 being non-intellectual, like mm. having a tremendous amount of intellect on the front end, but having having it all. You, what you're trying to do is suppress all that and have the stuff just then come through yeah. on the back end. So yeah. that you're, so that you don't, you don't hear the thinking. Yeah, I, I, that's one of the things I say to to people I'm producing them. I'm saying, I'm sorry, I can hear you thinking on this track. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to quit thinking. Yeah. So, um, so I think that that's one of Marshall's real strengths. He, uh, I think he's mostly so musical. Right. Yeah. I think he's really special. I've had him on here too, and. Uh, talked to him about a year ago and he's one of these people that I think his fans feel uh, a little protective of. In fact, I, I sort of went in, I, before talking to him, I had similar feelings about him almost that I do about you and your solo uh, career, which is that why is this guy not, you know, bigger? Why is he not one of the, he's one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Why is he not yeah. getting the attention he deserves? And after talking with him and expressing and his fans, I think feel very protective you know, like we're like we've right. been duped 
Like the world is unfair. <laughs> and but then when I talk to him, it's more like, oh, I wasn't I'm not really built that way anyway. You know, I am yeah, fine with right. the way my career worked out. I was not trying to be that guy. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And it worked out fine for me. And I appreciate your concern, but you don't have to do that. And that's kind of how I talking right. to you a minute ago. That's sort of how you feel as well. It seems like. Oh, well, I mean, you know, I, I, we all want hits. Yeah. I mean, nobody's going to turn the hits down. But the difference is what, what you give away to have a hit. What, you know, right. what part of your soul you're willing to sell off. And, the, the, you know, have to, for, for 90% of the people that sell off a piece of their soul, they still don't have a hit. Yeah, so right. it's not like it's some sort of, you know, just trying doesn't mean it's going to happen. Yeah. So I, I think that that most of my friends who've been successful or, or people that I know that have been successful have pretty much tried to follow their own, yeah. you know, Good. their own vision. Okay. Um, Tell us about the and writing. I would ter- definitely oh, consider Marshall successful. Oh, that's awesome. oh, Go ahead. absolutely. No, I, I do, too. It's just yeah. we want his fans want it bigger. You know, we want it bigger and thicker, well, and but it's good enough. Yeah. And we just need to be happy with that, yeah. especially for him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Tell us about the writing of Calling Out for Love. Okay. Well, no, no. It, it was one of these things where we cut the track and he didn't really have any words. And uh, he said, you want to write some words to this? And I said, sure. So uh, during a break in that session, I came back here to Canton where I was just kind of staying with Marty. Uh, we weren't married yet, but I was staying with her. She was living in a little apartment and I sat down at the kitchen table in that little apartment and, uh, and wrote lyrics that are pretty much the same marshall changed a few things but uh just wrote the okay. wrote the words so okay. it's like classic kind of johnny mercer yeah. uh, you know um henry mancini got it okay uh, music okay. by lyrics by kind of situation uh which is the way marty and i do a lot of our writing is we really sit in the same room ourselves we just kind of you know work on one of us will work on words and I've written some songs with a guy named Bill Domain, who's a great Nashville oh, guy okay. that way where he, I'll write 
the lyrics or he'll write the lyrics and I'll write a song out of his lyrics or he'll, I'll write lyrics to his songs, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, okay. Last one. And, and I swear you've been so kind with your time. Thank you, Don. I, uh, oh, no, that's fine. I hope this trip down memory lane is okay. I, uh, I want to talk about that first Matthew Sweet album. Because oh, okay, great. you're on there somewhere, and it is such a strange... I do a couple of songs. Yeah. The first track is Quiet Her, and um, yeah, that's the one that sounds most I... like you. Everybody did like two songs or something, okay. but um, I did it's, a couple of songs. I think Amy Mann sings on one of yeah. them. Okay, and so if you go back and find the one that Amy Mann sings on, I know I did yep. that one. Okay, that's a good one. Um, and yeah, I can't uh, remember which one it, it is, seems like. Do you remember? Well, there's uh, save. I just listened to it before we talked, and now I'm blanking. Save time for me. Yeah, okay, that's is a really great track, and it's co-written by Jules Shear, and they were right together or friends or whatever. So I bet it's that one. And I like yeah. Well, that, that was, the, there was a little bit of a New York uh, clique going on at the time. Jules and his wife and Amy and, uh, oh, that's Mark Michael, and, uh, uh Matthew and it was before Michael Penn was in okay. the picture that Amy was still really kind of living in Boston, but she would, was sort of part of that, that gang. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would I would hang out with him in New York sometimes, but it was because uh, Jules and his wife were seemed like they were partly partly in Northampton. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just a, you know it was a little bit incestuous in maybe okay. not the best of ways. Okay. Uh, Amy was spent, still spent a lot of time in in Boston. I think she was dating like Peter Wolf at the time or something. So, really? Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, that's great. I know she came to Peter with it. She came with Peter to a show one time, show Marty's one time, okay. but, um, Fascinating. it's, you know, it, 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 it was kind of a small world in, in yeah. that regard. And, uh, the guy who was, um, I'm blanking on his name now who had signed, uh, Matthew is, was a young guy at RCA, Steve Rabalski. Oh, I've heard that name. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, 
Steve was sort of the, he was the A&R guy on that record. And I think it was okay. his brainchild to have a bunch of different producers. It's very clear also that no a, one knows what to do yeah. with Matthew on that album. You know, no, it, every well, it, song sounds different. It's, it's different eclectic, styles. Yeah, it is. And, yeah. But not in a good way, not in a way like Matthew no. can do anything. It's more, we're going to try every form of 80s production we can think of and just see what exactly. sticks. And nothing did, obviously, until that third record, Girlfriend, when he can do what he right. wants to do, you know? Right, exactly. I, yeah. I agree. And uh, it was, but he wanted, he was totally into it. Was I mean, he? He was very hand. Yeah, he's very hands-on, always was. We met him for the first time when he was just a kid, about 19. He just showed up at Mitch's and driven in <laughs> from you know, Iowa or wherever it was. And, and, Nebraska. Uh, yeah. Just kind of, yeah, I was just sitting in sitting in the driveway, basically. Wow. wow. And said, I'm here. And, you know, Mitch and I didn't know what to do with it. But I did some early stuff before that called Buzz of Delight. He had this duo, Ooh. just drums and him. Uh, it's called Buzz of Delight. And okay. it was on DB, the same label that did the original Guadalcanal Diary stuff. Got it. So, okay. Um, okay. Okay. Well, I was curious, you know, were they, were you being charged with like, look, we've got this hot young guy, he can play the guitar, but he, we're trying to make him no, no, a pop I'd, star. No, no, I'd known him. Okay. No, no, no. I'd already known him for, at that point, for five years. Probably, oh, got it. Maybe. Okay. Because we met him when he was 19, you know. So yeah, I, yeah, good point. I, and, and Robofsky knew who I was from a lot of different things, yeah. not, not the least of which was the Marty Jones stuff, because sure. he had been involved with um, the woman who ended up being one of the people that signed Marty. Or it was her A&R guy. It's a woman named uh, Nancy Jeffries. Okay. So they worked, they had, he had worked under Nancy at RCA. And, uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, Steve was, still is a really interesting, smart guy. Good. Okay. Well, um, um, there's a million other things I could ask you about, but this is, I picked some <laughs> of the highlights and I appreciate you kind of, okay, you know, telling me the stories about some of this stuff. I um, Well, I, I hope I gave you something that's worth podcasting. All right, there you have it, Don Dixon. Hope you guys enjoyed that. I love that conversation. He is so good. I'm a little nervous I kept him longer than he wanted to. I think he may have been felt a little trapped and was too nice to say anything about it, but there was just so much ground to cover, you know? And his solo work is great. I, I know that he gets all the accolades because of R.E.M., but if you're unfamiliar with his solo work, go check it out, especially the 80s stuff. Of course, that's where, what I really love. This is my favorite Don Dixon song that you're listening to right here, A Million Angels Sigh. I mentioned it in the interview. This guy's voice is incredible, and he's still out there. And check out Marty Jones, too, his wife. She's amazing as well. And so many great stories with all these artists that you know that we love. We've had them on the show. Really special. Don is a special talent. Next week, we are coming back up to the 90s. We're going to be talking to a member of maybe my very favorite band of the last 20 years. I know primarily we focus on legacy artists on here. I felt like a band that started 20 years ago still kind of counted. But really and truly, I just want to turn you on to... One of the best bands that I've ever heard that I, if you, you may know them, they're British. They were part of that sort of Britpop movement of the late 90s. But if you're unfamiliar with them, I hope, hope, hope 
I'm turning you on to some good music because they are amazing. So come back for that. Huge thanks as always to Yan the Man Makevich, my buddy, my right-hand man. Thanks for all you do, Yan. You guys know how to find us by now. You can find us on Facebook. Like the page. Send us a message. Send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We will be back next Tuesday. Thank everybody.